Welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth. I'm an intimacy coach and psychologist. I created this show to explore the erotic alphabet, to help you learn more about desire and expressing your desires, discover ways to spice up your relationship and create that sizzling relationship you've always wanted. I do this through solid science, real life stories, and interviews with an exciting variety of sex experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create your ideal sexual life. Make sure you join us to access even more sexual strategies on my blog, A to Z of Sex. Access our monthly newsletter with subscriber only offers at www.atozofsex.com. That's A T O Z O F S E X. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of Sex. I'm Dr. Lori Beth, and I am your host. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Just a reminder, this podcast deals with adult content, so if you don't have total privacy, you might want to put on your headphones. Today, the letter is I, and I is for infidelity. There is nothing harder to recover from in a monogamous relationship than when a partner has been unfaithful. For some, infidelity is sexual straying only. For others, infidelity can be emotional when a partner is emotionally more intimate with someone outside of the relationship. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Duana Welch. Dr. Welch is known for applying social science to people's real-life issues. She is the author of Love Factually, the first book that uses science rather than opinion to take men and women through every stage of dating from before they meet until they commit. She has been a professor at universities in Florida, California, and Texas, and she contributes to publications at Psychology Today, eHarmony, Redbook, and others. She also coaches men and women who want more love in their lives via Skype and at her office in downtown Eugene, Oregon. To learn more about Duana and her book, visit www.lovesciencemedia.com. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, Lori Beth. So tell me, what in your view is infidelity? Well, in my view, it's actually not my view. It's the view of the person involved. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting is there's quite a large gender divide. It turns out that men tend to think infidelity is tab A went into slot B, and anything less than that was not quite infidelity, even though it might be really bothersome and annoying. And Women tend to have the view that if a male partner becomes emotionally attached to a female that's not them, that he has committed infidelity. And this pattern is being found globally. So I find that really interesting that uh, we have a gender divide here and that infidelity can be really any breaching of what people see as the expectation for the boundaries in their relationship and what role other people can play in it. What's fascinating to me about that is that you said that actually this divide exists globally. Despite cultural differences, because there are some cultures where certainly um, emotional closeness is encouraged far more than in some Western cultures. And yet it still seems to be that there's a line there somewhere. Yeah, it's really interesting. I'd I'd like to talk about that a little bit more if if that's okay. So I had a woman. So I, my career in love science that's i'm the love scientist (laughs) my career in love science started um 
my husband used to we just had our ninth anniversary and and when we first got married he used to tease me that you know every other word out of my mouth when people would bring up relationship stuff was well you know there's a study that finds and he said you know you really should write a book about this you know all this stuff nobody else knows this stuff everybody should know this stuff it's fascinating and helpful and i said oh you know but my daughter's only seven and i don't want to do that and i was making excuses for not doing it mostly because you know we fear the thing we really want to do and so i said but you know what i could do because he kept pushing on it, I said, I could write a blog. And so I started this blog on Facebook and it kind of became a thing. And then it got its own home at lovesciencemedia.com. And the idea was that people from around the world could write to me with their questions. And I would then anonymize their letter enoughs that even the letter writer couldn't prove it was them. Like I might say they have three kids instead of two or they're 47 instead of 45 or some, you know, I would anonymize it so that they could be truly anonymous but I would never change their gender or like the decade of age or anything. Well, this woman wrote to me and she said um, basically that she had had an affair. And when she told her husband about it, he ignored it. And she had told him about it as a way of saying the house is on fire. Mm -hmm. Help me put it out. I want our marriage to survive. And he wouldn't do anything. And I wanted to know more about it. Well, what had happened was she had become emotionally very close to someone she'd fallen in love with, a man that she wasn't married to. And she had even met him in a couple other cities for work. And they had not had sex. They had not gotten physically involved yet. And she wanted to tell her husband that she was in love with someone else. And her husband said, did you have sex with him? And she said, no. And he goes, well, then you didn't have an affair. Hmm. And that was devastating to her because she felt like that was just one more sign that he really didn't value the marriage. Now, I will say we worked together for a while. Her marriage is saved. Nobody's having an affair anymore of any kind. But, um, and I also want to say I'm not a therapist. You're a therapist and I'm not. Um, I use relationship science to help people, but I'm, I'm very advice-driven. I'm not, I don't listen to you tell me a lot about your issues and not jump right in there. I tell people very, very pointedly what science would suggest they do, and then we see how that works out. Anyway, um, so I, st- I read this very interesting study where men and women were asked to not only give their emotional reaction to an imaginary scenario, but to let scientists measure their physiological reaction. And this was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what the men, what happened is the scientists uh, asked men and women to wear sensors on their palms to measure sweating, which is a sign mm-hmm. of stress. And they were asked to wear sensors um, on their brows. So when your brows knit, that's a sign of concern or stress. Mm -hmm. And they were asked to allow their heart rate to be measured and their rate of respiration, breathing, because these things all increase if you're stressed. So in other words, it wasn't just, does this stress you out? Tell us yes or no. They actually looked physically, are you lying or are you telling us the truth? And so... They randomly assigned, meaning at the, at the flip of a coin, men and women had a 50-50 shot at being asked to imagine one of two scenarios. Either they were asked to imagine that their real-life heterosexual partner was having a physical sexual affair with someone else, or they were asked to imagine that their real-life heterosexual partner was having an emotional infidelity with someone else. What was really interesting is, first of all, most people are not cool with either scenario, of course. (laughs) The the men and women who were asked about emotional affairs did not like that. The men and women who were asked about physical physical affairs, they didn't like that. But the gender divide was stark. 
men were much more distressed if they were envisioning a sexual affair than women were. Mm-hmm. And they were much more distressed than the guys who were envisioning an emotional affair. Women had the exact opposite pattern of responses. Women who were envisioning their male partner falling in love with another woman were much more distressed than men imagining the same thing or than women imagining their partner having a sexual affair. And I just found that fascinating. And evolutionary psychologists think that they've uncovered why the gender gap exists, but the gender gap does exist. Yeah, no, and that doesn't surprise me. I mean, although I'm a therapist, I'm also a coach. And so I can be somewhat advice driven as well. And and depending on what's going on with people and couples, when I work with them, I will refer them to research because I was trained as a scientist. So I rather like when there's there's actual research that I can that will back up a theory. Um, and what I like about that is that you're measuring the physical characteristics so that even if somebody is prone to denying that this is how they feel. It may not be that they're lying about it. They're just not really tuned into themselves. That when you can say, well, look, look, here's all the characteristics of stress. This is what you're showing, that this is obviously yes. quite upsetting to you. You can then do something with it far more easily. Um, and I find that gender divide absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, you know, men in the... Uh, apparently, this all comes from what worked in the ancient past. You know, we all have, a, I just finished writing the, the forward for my book for Japan. And because it's going to be published in Japanese, I'm really excited about it. And um, unlike the other places in the world where it's about to be published, they wanted me to write a specific one pager for the Japanese audience. And I started out by basically saying ancestor worship is legit. Like your ancestors actually gave you ancient wisdom, but how they did it, was that the people who survived long enough to procreate and raise those children to adulthood were the ones with what I call the winning psychology. I don't mean the best or most humane psychology. I mean the psychology that got two jobs done. Did you survive? Yes. Did you reproduce? Yes. Yes. If you got those two jobs done, then by definition, your genetic code was the one that got passed onward. Mm -hmm. And today, every single person alive is literally um, the inheritor of an unbroken chain, not just of whether we stand upright, but what we think. There is no place in the world where women prefer really short, unsuccessful, meek men. There's no place in the world where women prefer that. There's no place in the world where men prefer women who are round and incapable of bearing children. They prefer youth and beauty which actually everything we think of as youth and beauty is a sign. It, it signifies reproductive viability. I, now, is this the way I want the world to be? Well, frankly, no. I, I want a world where, you know, the only thing that matters is the, the content of our character, not the color of our skin, as Martin Luther King Jr. would have said. That's the world I want, but it's not the world I have. And the reason it's not the world I have is Look, there may have been men who were really egalitarian in their sexual affairs in the ancient past. Maybe there were men who preferred women who were 70 years old, but they didn't procreate. Right. The men who exist today carry forward the winning psychology. The women who exist today carry forward the winning psychology of women who preferred willing and able providers and protectors. So we still universally have these drives and desires. And a lot of times they clash with the culture we're in. Mm -hmm. And the only way to mate successfully and happily is to give, if you're heterosexual, to give the opposite sex 
the signals that they need so that they can not only bond with us, but so that they can want to stay attached to us. And uh, what I have found really fascinating in my work is that science frequently shows what I call a huge culture gap. There's a gap between what our culture tells us to do and what the other sex demands to hear before they can fall in love with us. That's interesting. I mean, I was doing um, some research on an article today about breasts, believe it or not. And one of the pieces of, of information that I found was that there was this whole discussion about why do human beings have round, full breasts when they're not breastfeeding? Because all of our forebears in the animal kingdom, don't. The only time they're round and full is when they're breastfeeding. And two things were said. One was that that is the sign, one of the biggest signs now of fertility. And they brought up the fact that when you are um, a child, you're flat chested and you're not able to procreate. And as you get, once you're well past menopause and past the ability to procreate, again, there, there's a, it's not flat chested, but you lose breast tissue. So you become a bit more concave. And so it it's that that attracts men so much. But that's also that says, yes, I am good breeding stock. Here I am. Yeah, everything that we think of as beautiful uh, connotes fertility, you know, clear skin, even teeth, mm -hmm. uh, even facial features, symmetry throughout our bodies, a 0.7 waist to hip ratio. I don't think there's a guy out there who says, hmm, she seems to have a waist that's precisely 30% smaller than her hips. I shall tap that and procreate copiously. I mean, you know, this is unconscious. Yeah. No, <laughs> this is, our mate, that's what I'm saying is our mating psychology is unconscious. So the way we view fidelity and a lack of fidelity, a lot of times also that is unconscious. When men are, are saying through their words and their emotions, look, it's not really infidelity until a penis entered a vagina. They are worried about a problem that plagued their ancestors, which was, are all the kids really mine? Yeah. Paternity assurance. Women are worried about something else. Do you know what the number one uh, predictor right now today is of whether a man's going to abandon a woman and their children? No. If he falls in love with someone else. Hmm. Okay. Now, in the ancient past, that could have spelled your doom if he fell in love with someone else and he withdrew his resources, there weren't life insurance policies. No, no. And no. women were, women were home looking after the kids. That's what they were doing. The kids in the home. So they were hunting and gathering, which, you know, doesn't provide as many calories as getting meat. And yes, we lived in tribal societies and people did take care of each other. There have been some anthropologists who pointed out that it wasn't like it was a nuclear family unit. And yet what you see is that um, the tribe did not always feel like providing for women who did not have male protectors. They sometimes forced them to leave the tribe and go to certain death. There are still cultures today, tribal societies, where if a mother dies, the child is buried with her alive. Wow. Because the tribe doesn't have the, cap the capacity to provide for everyone in the absence of both parents. Right. Wow. So let me ask a question. Thinking in terms of evolutionary psychology, then, what do you think about the differences in terms of polyamory and infidelity? Because, so it's I mean, there is a lot of research around 
the mating drive and whether we're actually meant to be with one partner? That's a different question. So you've got a couple questions there. One is about whether we're meant to be with one partner and one is about polyamory versus infidelity. So very few creatures in the world, including most of the creatures we think are monogamous, most of them aren't. Right. So, for example, scientists have tagged birds that mate for life, and they've found that a lot of those birds are cheating. Occasionally, they stay with one mate for life, but they may leave the nest briefly and actually mate with someone else and then come back. So what we tend to have is uh, with humans is serial monogamy. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I don't want anyone who hears this to think that what Dwayne Welch is currently telling you is that anything goes and, and your feelings of um, unease about your partner having sex with someone else or getting emotionally close to someone else are not valid. That is not what I'm saying here mm -hmm. at all. We know for sure, and I will say this, I am disclaimer, I am not an expert on polyamory. However, I know a scientist who is, and he says that the studies show that very quickly in polyamorous relationships, within a couple of years, most of the time, the couple either breaks up or returns to monogamy. People who really love each other don't tend to share each other sexually very well. Are there exceptions? Yes. Might your mileage vary? Absolutely. And yet, science is very good at telling us what happens to most people most of the time. That's what it does. Science doesn't exist like a crystal ball to tell you what will happen to every person every time, but it is damn good at telling us what happens to most people most of the time. And polyamory does not work for the vast majority of people. That said, if it works for you, great. For the rest of you out there, what is human nature? Well, in the ancient past where our psychology comes from, usually both partners did not actually live for an entire lifetime the way that we think of it now. And so... People would, uh, and also sometimes you had to be apart for a while. And so people sometimes cheated on each other. Um, by cheating, I mean sexual uh, infidelity that happens without the other person's permission. Mm -hmm. If you have each other's permission, then that's not infidelity. That's permission. So sexual affairs happened back then. And um, in fact, men have specific biological mechanisms that prove that sexual affairs happened back then. And uh, we know that women um, sometimes willingly had these affairs and sometimes unwillingly. Sometimes they were raped. Mm -hmm. We also know that people frequently lost their mate, however much they must have loved them and might have loved them, and they would get another mate. And so, you know, our idea of fidelity for 50, 60 years, that's kind of a new idea. Mm -hmm. That said, I will tell you, I will tell you that more than half of people who are married say that they have never, ever had an emotional or sexual affair. I want to make that clear. Just because something happens in the natural world, I mean, child abuse happens in the natural world. Does this mean that normative means it's good or that we support it? No doesn't mean that at all. You have to decide what your moral code is and abide by it. And you have to work out with your partner what's acceptable and abide by that. Yeah. And so saying that infidelity is quote unquote natural is not the same thing as saying, therefore it is good. Right. Or therefore, therefore you have no right to your emotions if you don't like it. Well, there are plenty of things that are natural that we wouldn't necessarily consider good. So it's, I always think that, that that's problematic because oftentimes people don't understand the definition of natural. Yes. Yeah. It is natural to commit murder. If you look at 
aggression is natural. Right. If you look at every society in the world, there are murders everywhere. Does that mean every person is murdering? No. Does it mean murdering is normative? No, natural and normative are different. But it's normative to pick a partner, stay with them for a lifetime. That's still normative. And to have sex only with them, that's still normative. That's different than saying, is it always what happens? It'd be interesting to me to see some um, some of the research looking at LGBTQ folks and to see whether the normative um, responses are the same. Um, yeah, they are a little different, actually. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I think it's probably- it's, it's not. Yeah, it's normative that women in lesbian relationships maintain monogamy. It's normative that, meaning what most people do most of the time, that's what I mean yeah. by normative. It's normative that gay men don't, that gay men tend to have some degree of openness in the relationship. And unlike with heterosexual unions where that usually either you return to monogamy or you break up, it's normative that gay male couples actually permit this and they stay together. I want to emphasize that normative does not mean that that's what everyone's comfortable with. I routinely hear from gay men who are distressed at their difficulty finding another gay man who insists as they do on monogamy. And, and I mean, I know, I know quite a few gay men that are completely monogamous and quite a few heterosexual couples that aren't. So, you know, I do, I think it, I think it is important that people understand that, that normative, it, it's a statistical term. This is the average. Yeah, it's, what not, it's not a moral term. Hmm. Yeah, this isn't a moral term. I mean, there are things, there are things that strike almost everyone as absolutely morally repugnant that nonetheless happen. I gave the example of murder. Another example is child abuse. I gave that example. Do you know the single biggest predictor of child abuse everywhere in every society that's ever been studied? No. What is it? The presence of a male in the household who is not genetically related to the children. I probably knew that actually. Yeah. So, but when, when the scientists in Canada, the first two scientists who thought of this, they wanted to study this, they were in Canada and they asked other people, well, what do you think it's going to be? And people came up with, well, um, the biggest predictor of childhood physical and sexual abuse is going to be whether the parents were abused. That was the, the big thought, right? Yeah. And it turned out that genetic re- relatedness was the supreme. It, let, me, let me just put it this way. Children are more likely to be severely sexually, emotionally, and physically abused uh, by a non-genetically related male by a factor of 60 to 100 times. It's a huge factor. It's the biggest factor by, by, you know, dozens of percentage points. And yet, before science, we didn't know that. No. And that's interesting to me, having spent a lot of time um, working in the family courts and doing a lot of assessments on families where there's been abuse and neglect. Um, and if I think about 25 years of doing that and, and the families that I was involved with, yes, I could say, oh, yeah, actually, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. It also actually makes some sense, I would, would say, from an evolutionary point of view as well. Yeah, these scientists, uh, Daly and Wilson, they are they're evolutionary scientists, and their their rationale was that um, the genetically related have more of an investment in the well being of the children, and then actually uh, 
genetic unrelatedness means that your partner is putting resources towards someone who's not going to carry your lineage forward. Right. Again, this is all unconscious. Hmm. And, and it helps sometimes to, to drive the conversation back a little bit and talk about lions. When a male lion takes over a pride, the first thing it does is run off the offspring that can run off and kill all the rest. Well, if females don't go into estrus, they don't become reproductively viable until they stop nursing their cubs. And these cubs aren't his. And he probably has in the wild a couple years to raise his own cubs before another male kicks him out. So right. if he is a kind and gentle lion who, who allows these cubs to grow up, he becomes genetically irrelevant. Again, I want to emphasize I'm not saying that I like this or that I think it is morally just, or that it is morally correct, or that I want the world to be this way. I am saying that understanding the ancient psychology that we are all carrying around, regardless of culture, all of us are carrying around a psychology that prefers our kin to other people. And understanding this allows us to override it cognitively. It, under, it helps us to understand who the likely abusers will be. It helps us to identify children who are in situations that might not be helpful to them. It helps us to, for example, understand that when we have people adopting children, we do have to be more careful. We actually have to vet them because it's not, quote unquote, natural. It's desirable for us to love all children, but it's not actually deeply human nature. There are a lot of violations. There are a lot more than if people raise their own children. It's why in the United States, judges tend to place children with biological relatives because statistically that usually works out better. I don't like any of this, by the way. No, I don't either. But I also think that it's important that whether we like it or not, that we pay attention to it so it can be overridden because if we don't pay attention to it, if, we're not, if it's not brought out into the light, you can't override it cognitively. Right. And by the way, it's kind of an uphill battle, I have to tell you, even when you do know it. My husband adopted a son from Russia before, long before we met. And when I, when I met his son, it was 10. And so, you know, there wasn't just a lack of, of nature, genetics between us. There was a lack of nurture. I didn't know mm -hmm. him. And um, he's, he's a grown-up now, and I'm not going to tell a lot more of his, of his story. Uh, but I will say that uh, when I was teaching at university level, I used to ask my students how many of them had step-parents and how many of them loved their step-parent just as much as their genetic parents because it's really tempting to hate the step-parent, but then it turned out that the kids, even raised from infancy, often said, not, well, that's not my real dad or, yeah, that's kind of not my real mom. And uh, I would talk then about my experience of wanting to love my stepson as much as I love my daughter and not being able to do it. Now, did I try while he was in my care to show him as much love as my daughter? I tried hard. I hope I succeeded. Right. But that's a whole different thing than whether it was natural to me to want to pour everything into him the way I do my own daughter. And I think, but I do think that's something particularly when you're talking about blended families, but also when you're talking about adoption, when there's already a biological child in place that needs to be considered as to what kind of an impact it's going to have on the other child. Because if there's a, a difference and it's usually a perceivable difference, no matter how hard people try, it does have an impact. It has an impact on both children. And we don't usually consider those things because no, we just think it's going to be the Brady bunch, you know, yeah. 
Well, because, but it's also because it's somehow taboo to say anything like that. I mean, it's a horrible, it's a horrible thing to say. How could you suggest that people, well, nobody's suggesting that people are doing these things deliberately. Right. I think it's really important to understand that, that our psychology about infidelity, about mixed families, about adoption, about a lot of things, that there's a huge chunk of our psychology residing in the right half of our brain, which is unconscious, that is directing us to do things that are not always enlightened. And that until we know about these things, my take is we really don't have much choice. We don't have much voice. And even once we know about them, it's, we're bucking the system, right? Even knowing this, has, it wasn't easy for me. But knowing it made it where, hey, you know what? I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to try. Right. So now in terms of couples who have had issues with infidelity, how do you, what do you advise in general in terms of healing that? particularly when you've got such a big gender split? You know, um, so there's a lot of research on how people get past affairs. And the good news is that a full two-thirds of couples do. And not only that, they get past the affair and they say that their marriage is closer and stronger than before. And so how do they do that? Well, (laughs) this is why I'm not this is why I look at science, because if you were just to say, Duena, what do you think? And it was just what I thought, I would give you all the wrong advice. But it turns out that science has found what works for most people most of the time. And this is what it says. First of all, the party that went outside the relationship has to give all the details that the other person wants. The injured partner has access to all the details that they want to hear. All of them. Mm-hmm. So if they say, did you have sex with your affair partner in our marriage bed? And you did. You have to say yes. Right. If they say that Tuesday when I saw that your tie was, was tied this one way in the morning, but then after lunch it was tied another way, I feel crazy now. Like, was that a day that you met her at the hotel? You better say yes to that. Do not gaslight your partner. If you want your relationship to be better than before, if you want it to survive, and and I believe in relationships surviving happily, not miserably. If you want that happy survival, you have to allow your partner to reintegrate his or her experience so that they can feel like they're not crazy. And that's so, because what your partner's going through, if they're on the tail end of emotional or sexual infidelity, what they're going through is reorganizing their knowledge of you and their trust in themselves and their own ability to see what they saw and feel what they felt. And if you don't give that to them, they will never trust you. Mm-hmm. And you may be able to stay in that relationship, but it's going to be, it's going to be like that old job, that old joke about the person who has uh, stage four cancer. And the doctor says, and it's incurable, and the doctor says, I want you to move to the North Pole, and I want you to marry someone you are physically unattracted to who you hate. And the, the, um, the person with the disease says, will that make me live longer? And the doc says, no, but you'll feel like you lived 200 years. <laughs> you know, I don't want you. <laughs> I don't want you in that kind of relationship where you withhold the details and you gaslight your partner, meaning you you uh, reconstruct a reality that's not real for them, and you continue lying and denying even that which they have evidence of. If you do that to them, your life with this partner is going to be miserable. So, first thing, you got to share with them every detail they want to know, no matter how painful it is for you. Second thing, you have to live a transparent life going forward. 
Mm-hmm. If you were the person who had the affair, even if you think that wasn't an affair, how can they construe that as an affair? You know what? The person who gets to define whether there was an affair is the injured person. They're the ones who get to define it. You don't get to. And so if, if they say that they're injured by some of your behavior, then you have to live a transparent life. This means that they have all your passwords. And by the way, if you think, oh, well, but then I'm going to create another account and do my real life, guess what? You're going to get caught and you're going to get divorced or worse. I consider them staying with you and flogging you the rest of your life to be worse, actually. And, you know, they might do things. I've had um, people write to me who did things like call the entire extended family and out them and provide all the proof. Mm -hmm. I don't know anybody who wants that. Look, if if you're the one who had the affair your fate is to a large degree in your hands. If you value this relationship, give them the details they want and live an open life going forward. However, I will say this. If you were the person who uh, is the uh, injured partner, if you're the partner whose expectation was violated, I think that's a fairly neutral way to say it. Mm -hmm. Because what's happened is you had an expectation and it was violated. If you're that person, you do not have carte blanche to treat your partner with unkindness and disrespect and disdain. You don't. You have to continue treating them with kindness and respect, even though you're angry. And it really, you know, I view what I do and what therapists do to be a both and thing. This is not either or. Almost all my clients see a therapist at the same time that they see me. Because for example, I see a lot of people who are in some stage of an affair. Either they're having one, they're getting over one, they are trying to deal with a partner who can't forgive them or they can't forgive themselves or they can't forgive the partner. And almost all of those clients are seeing a therapist at the same time. And the reason is they need to have regular meetings with a therapist where they are guided in communication that is kind and respectful. They need that. Not just want it, they need it. You're not likely to get through this by yourself just by reading a book. No, I know. And and I would I would say the same thing. I think if you actually want to have a relationship after an affair, you need your individual work and you need your work as a couple. And And I don't see, as a rule, couples make it if they haven't done some individual work, they just don't because they can't maintain that attempt to be um, respectful and, and to that attempt to move past it. If they don't have a place where they can deal with the constant upheaval in the initially anyway. Yeah. It's in us when we are threatened Mm. to either fight or flee and neither one of these things is going to keep your marriage together. So you need that, that kind of larger perspective of someone who can say, okay, I understand that you need to tell your wife that you feel uh, completely disregarded and unloved and that you feel um, enraged and, and that you feel uh, cuckolded and all of these other things that you feel embarrassed and ashamed and all the things you feel. You need to be able to express that to her. If you express it in a cutting, uh, I want to say beyond disrespectful, um, I want to say completely disregarding Mm -hmm. way that undercuts who she is as a person. If you get really critical here, she's going to do what all people do. She's not going to be able to hear you. Right. And so one of the things that some of my clients have struggled with is they're married to someone who can't forgive them. Yeah. 
who can't or won't forgive them. And so I will tell you, those of you who want to be forgiven, the two steps I already told you about are absolutely necessary, but there is a third step. Fourth step, really. I mean, you got to change. You can't just keep doing the, you can't keep violating the expectation. I mean, I think no. hopefully that went without saying, but, but the, the final step is if this partner is ever going to get over it, this partner has to be fully heard and feel like their feelings and, and their injury was fully acknowledged and that you took it on the chin and accepted responsibility for your actions that you didn't say yes, but mm-hmm. you said yes, full stop. Yes. I did that. And I am so, so sorry that I did. And I will not do it again. Because anything short of that, your partner's not going to be able to trust you. And that distrust is going to play out in so many ways that are uncomfortable for you. You know, a lot of times doing the best thing for the relationship is doing the best thing for yourself. Yep. I agree with that. And people don't often realize that. Yeah, kindness and respectfulness are good for everybody. Yeah, no, <laughs> I think I think the problem that my experience is that people have real difficulty in that situation, staying respectful. They, yes. I, you see glimmers of kindness, but the staying respectful thing becomes really, really, really difficult. Well, it is. It's hard because this person did something that hurt you so deeply. Hmm. You know, I, I'm saying this and I have to tell you, to my knowledge, I've never been... I've never been the other party in an affair, to my knowledge. I've never been the partner who discovered an affair or who was told about an affair. So I haven't personally have, had to do this. And my hat is off to the people who have had to do this and who faced it. And who, you know, when I read that two-thirds of people wind up better than before, I'm blown away by the resilience of human beings. And, you know, some of, the, some of what happens to the other third is not necessarily bad. My experience both personal and professional, is that some relationships shouldn't be anyway. Right? Yeah. We sometimes sometimes make wrong choices. And maybe, and it can be very difficult to get out of a wrong choice without some impetus. So sometimes if your partner goes off and has an affair, if the relationship were one that was a good one that you really wanted, you would work towards moving through it, you would work towards being part of that two thirds. But sometimes that's just the wake up call that highlights, you know what, I really knew this wasn't the right relationship. And so now this is the opportunity to pull out. But even then, it's always so much better if people are able to do that in a way that isn't horribly aggressive and disrespectful and tearing everything down that existed before, if there is a way of actually doing it in an amicable way. And that does require some work. Your listeners need to stop the podcast, go back to the part where you started talking then and listen again to what you just said. The best scientists in the world fully agree with what you just said. You know, I, so there's an exercise I do with a lot of my clients who are on the edge about whether to stay and go. And I base it on science. I base it on the science of people who've studied who does belong together and who doesn't. And one of the very first questions that you should ask yourselves if you've been betrayed, any betrayal, if it's a significant betrayal, is was the relationship worth saving before the betrayal took place? Yes, most definitely. Yeah, if it wasn't, then then you know what? Cut. 
and and I'll stay there. I mean, and sometimes, I mean, if people, you know, the betrayals are usually cut so deep that people can find it really difficult to do this. Mm-hmm. But you've got to separate that from making the separation, particularly if there are children involved. I think that all couples who are separating, who have children, ought to go through some counseling or some coaching in order to separate amicably. Above and beyond mediation, there's the emotional part of that. Because the damage that's done when people don't take responsibility for ending things in a way that is respectful is, I mean, that we keep coming back to that word, but it's so important. It's just it's so important that if I had to summarize 60 years of spot on solid science on relationships in just one sentence, here's the sentence. If you can find and be someone kind and respectful, your love life's going to go well. And if you can't, I promise it won't. I love it. I think we should take that and make a meme out of it. <laughs> I think it is one actually somewhere with my book. <laughs> Brilliant. So where can people find you if they want to consult you? Well, there are a number of ways they can find me. I would say the most direct route uh, is to go to my website and click get coaching. And, you know, you'll be directed to my email and some flyers and all that. You can see if you want to work with me. Uh, I have clients all over the world, including in the UK. So we can work it out. Um, That's at Mm lovesciencemedia.com. And then for people who think, well, you know, I'd really like to just read the book and see whether this seems more right for me. Look, your library should have it. If you want to buy it, you can buy it anywhere. It's on Audible. It's on iTunes. It's on Kindle. It's in paperback. You can get it in the UK. You can get it everywhere. And uh, the book is called Love Factually with an F. A little play on that wonderful British movie, Love Factually with an F. And uh, the author is me, Dwayna Welch. And if you want a free chapter of the book, you can get that at Love Factually with an F dot C-O, lovefactually.co. Now that link is going to be on the web page with the podcast and absolutely as well as all your websites. I'll have all those links there so you can find them. So I thank you for joining me. Thank you. It was delightful. I love all the different bends and twists and turns in our conversation today. It's one of the, me too. It's one of my favorite things about doing this podcast. So thanks everybody for joining me this week for the A to Z of sex. Please write in with your questions to Dr. Lori Beth at a to z of sex.com. That's a t o z or z o f s e x.com. Visit both websites, www.a to z of sex.com and www.the-intimacy-coach.com to learn about alternative sexual choices, types of sexual relationships, and to learn to sizzle and create that ideal lasting intimate relationship. For a free 30-minute session with me, head over to www.adazofsex.com and click on the button that says book now. Please join me next week when the letter will be J. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the A to Z of sex. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes and make sure you head over to www.atozofsex.com. That's A T O Z O F-S-E-X to subscribe to my free newsletter to help you keep your sex life sizzling. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes as we work our way through the sexual alphabet to discover the wide world of sex, sexuality, desire, and intimacy. 
Knowledge gives you the power to create relationships that bring you satisfaction and joy. Hope to see you next week.